Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I am so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. Yes, you will absolutely hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more than that, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, The goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you, yes, you, I'm looking right at you, to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, you can be, you can achieve, you can impact even more through your life. Or maybe more simply said, so that you can live inspired. And today's episode will absolutely do this. It will reinforce that message of waking up from accidental living and living inspired with us. The name of our guest today is Mike Matheny. Mike Matheny is a former major league ball player, an all-star catcher, been on the Milwaukee Brewers, the St. Louis Cardinals, the San Francisco Giants, to name a few. He has been there. He has done that. He is a hugely successful player, athlete, man, and success story. And yet the story doesn't end there. No story does, I don't think. It's also a story of a man that ended up losing almost everything, almost everything. Yes, he lost everything financially, but he did not lose the things that mattered most to him. And I think in that, he was able to bounce back in a mighty way to not be swallowed up by the pits of despair or discouragement or feeling like his world had turned upside down, even though it had, but to continually move forward, to progress, to grow, to become an even better version of himself. It's a story of the Phoenix rising from the ashes today. Mike Matheny is the manager for the St. Louis Cardinals. I am a St. Louis guy, so that's my team. Matheny's my manager. He's also my guy. I love this guy. I love his heart. I love the way he coaches, the way he inspires, the way he leads. And I think as you hear his story, as you hear his heart, it's going to remind you not only why Mike Matheny is successful, but also provide very specific ways in your own marriages, your own partnerships, your own work life, your exercise regimens, your finances, that you yourself can become even more successful. So are you ready? Are you ready for this? Let the organ music start playing. Come to your feet. The national anthem has been sung. Mike Matheny is in the house. Welcome to our show, the Live Inspired Movement. My friends, Mike Matheny. John, how are you? Brother, I'm great, and uh, I know you have a lot going on like we all do, but you may even have more than most of us have going on. Tell the folks who may not know the name Mike Matheny or may not know the role uh, that you have today what your life looks like. Well, um, for uh, people who who don't know, you don't assume anything, um, but uh, this is um, a great opportunity for me to to be in the the seat of my working job as a manager of the Cardinals, but in the off season, which is now running through um, really the the second week of February, 
I've become a full-time dad and uh, and husband. And, and actually, um, sometimes when I get on an airplane or um, a place where people really don't follow the baseball sport, uh, people ask me what I do. I tend to tell them I'm a stay-at-home dad, and that really makes <laughs> the conversation pretty short. That's a good – hey, I may start trying that one. That, that's a great way to put the stop sign up quickly. Hey, uh, you are a manager for the Cardinals, and uh, we're going to be talking a little about the about the managerial experience. But truly, Mike, there, there are folks who follow us who may not even know who the Cardinals are. So what sport are we talking about? What city are we living in? We're living in St. Louis, and uh, yeah, we take some things for granted. I know that, uh, that I do. We've been so fortunate to have such a strong following since this is a baseball city. And um, I had uh, one of my kids, uh, tell somebody at their school uh, out of state that I was the manager of the Cardinals, and so they thought that I was the guy um, who uh, basically served as the clubby of the team. Uh, manager, I guess, is the only um, it's baseball is the only sport that uses manager to kind of right. say uh, head coach. coach. So I've uh, been fortunate enough to to be the the head coach slash manager of the team here for uh, five seasons now. And when you respond to someone on a flight that you are a stay-at-home dad, and if they are bold enough to say, tell me about that, how, how many kids do you have, Mike, and how long have you been married? We have five kids. Uh, we've been married for 24 years and have uh, been very fortunate. We have um, three kids in college right now, one who's uh, in the professional world, and just one still at home. So we're uh, nearing and getting close to that uh, that empty nest stage. Mike, it's been said that all people, all leaders, all men and women have stories. It's just usually not the story we're telling the world. And today when people look on uh, Fox Sports or however, however they may see you or follow you, they see a guy, this this good-looking man, brought, managing the St. Louis Cardinals' dream job, and yet that's not where your story begins. So I'd like you to take us all the way back to your childhood, what life was like for little Mike Matheny growing up. Well, um, I, I feel like I grew up in as good a home as anybody could grow up in, and I know not everybody has that uh, that same story. I was fortunate to have two parents that uh, truly loved each other and weren't afraid to, to show it or uh, nor show their love for us. And um, you know, hardworking people. Both my parents came out of the hills of, of West Virginia in a little town uh, called Leon in Mason County, West Virginia, just uh, south of the Ohio River on the Kanawha River in a town where there's a lot of farming. And my dad grew up as the oldest of eight in, in a little farm uh, on, in, uh, in Leon. And he broke away. He actually was chasing baseball. He wanted to uh, he wanted to play worse than anything else. He was a pitcher. And he was actually, I hear stories all the time when we go back and visit family of how he was um, taking old hay fields and turned them into baseball fields and had to recruit kids from miles and miles away to get enough kids to play a game. And, um, he was he was a pretty good player and wanted to take his shot. So he went north. He heard of some tryouts in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, he headed north and and had a couple tryouts. Uh, they didn't pan out, and uh, he jumped right into what he knew, which was operating having heavy equipment. Uh, worked for the George Igel Company in Columbus and um, stayed in that same company uh, for for his whole career and. Uh, was a, just a great example, not just of hard work, but also how to how to be a, a godly man. And uh, he was very consistent in how he lived his life. Him, um, my mom, both. Uh, we lived in a in a small home where not much was going to escape myself or my three brothers' ears. Uh, they were so consistent with 
but figuring out how to deal with issues, um, but do it in a way that was uh, was God honoring. And uh, Dad really preached a lot, but practiced it, which made it stick to us kids. And uh, he went about his business in a way that uh, set set the bar for how I felt I should be going about mine. And feel very fortunate, and um, was able to live in uh, Columbus, Ohio, in that same home my my whole life, and uh, continued to try and sort through many of the mistakes that I made and uh, found a uh, found a real faith that was really the guiding kind of compass for uh, my, my moral compass and my um, spiritual guide for, for how I go about my life and um, through ups and downs, figured out uh, enough to, to get through some tough times. I don't envy kids today right. going through those teenage years, but um, it, was a, it was a great place to grow up. And Mike, just because our mom or dad may have a strong faith or a strong character, does not necessarily that just by breathing the same air or having the same gene pool that we, we come into it as well. Was there a person, an experience that kind of led you forward in your character and in, in your faith walk? Yeah, I actually got to the point where I realized that uh, just because you're born in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. <laughs> and um, I was I was in church so much. My mom actually is still, uh, she works for a missionary association based out of our church, uh, Fellowship Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, and um, we were in church all the time uh, since she worked there. And so I, I was very familiar with not just the Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, and Wednesday service that we went to every week. Uh, we were there uh, on free time and sometimes vacation because that's where she was. Right. So I, I became very religious, and I understood the routine. And at, at one point, um, one particular day, there was a, a guest speaker that came in and he really uh, laid it down to the entire congregation where you could tell he was frustrated with a, a, a very lukewarm um, Christian um, group, and not just our church, but in, in our nation in general, and, and people being very content with religion. When you look at the, the history of Jesus Christ, the people he had the most problems with were the religious leaders of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and what this man kept challenging us was uh, this is not about what you're doing, is except with what you do with Jesus Christ. That's the question. What do you do with Jesus? And uh, I, I felt like this guy was staring at me and pointing me out, and, um, he, and, and he was. And I went home that night, John, and uh, I felt what it was like um, to wrestle with God. Um, and and I, I had a, a lot of questions going through my young mind, and fortunately I, I found the courage to go ask my parents, who were wise enough, to go to the source of wisdom, uh, God Himself through His His Word, and they opened up the Book of Romans and showed me how I could know and, and have answers to those questions that I had. Mike, how has that shaped and uh, informed how you move through school and and uh, eventually even how you become the player that you became? Yeah, and, and I would never try to convince somebody that uh, you know I had this uh, this dramatic conversion to the point where then all of a sudden I was walking through the public school system toting an eight-pound Bible, wearing a clip-on tie, and preaching to people. Um, you know, I was a kid making stupid decisions, right. and it, but there, there was an absolute difference, though, in the fact that I, I had a guide, and I knew that. And, and it was this uh, great tension that I was living in where where I think that's where God wants us. That's where He's called us, is, is to that relationship where we're walking and, and trying to, to live this life out in a way that honors Him, and, and we're going to fall because that's who we are. And and then you have the opportunity to, to, to approach Him 
and his throne and and, uh, and and ask for forgiveness and realize that that that's what he offers is that grace we, we don't deserve it but uh, that in relation it, it's just ever growing by acknowledging some of the things that we're doing asking for some guidance asking for forgiveness and then some direction and and even as a young guy i i, I sensed that I, I i had a moral compass now and i knew uh, because of the indwelling of the holy spirit when you make that decision uh you have that ever-present guide. And so I um, was trying to, to make wise decisions, even when it got down to the choice when I'm graduating high school, trying to figure out what to do. I was drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays out of high school, and but I had a, a great scholarship lined up at the University of Michigan, and I was really in tension in between uh, where to go. And um, I'll make the, the long story short, in fact, that um, we got to the point where it was the day before I'm to go to class, and, and the Blue Jays made an offer that was way beyond what what they should have offered for the drowned I was drafted in, and uh, I was on on the way to walking out of my dorm, and I was still praying. Literally, I was kind of in my head, God, give me wisdom, because I was still property of the Blue Jays until I walk into that first class, and I was heading that first class, and there was a a pigeon on the roof of the dorm that seemed to have great aim and hit me right on top of the head, John. And um, it actually that pigeon dropped on me enough that I had to go all the way back to the dorm room and start all over and shower, change clothes. Um, and I thought, God, you know, I've asked for things to be <laughs> obvious before, but uh, wow, come on. Mike, so is that, I've never heard that story. That's a true story? True story, John. And uh, I shower, look in the mirror, and uh, I said, I still believe I'm supposed to have an education. And I walk in the door of my first class about 20 minutes late, and there was a uh, beautiful blonde from St. Louis sitting in the first row who then became my wife and mother oh, of our gosh. five kids. Uh, that is uh, an amazing story. So since you brought it up, tell us about this beautiful blonde in, in the front row of the class. Well, it took her about three years before I finally calmed her in to actually give me the time of day. And uh, we started dating my junior year. And a uh, beautiful uh, girl named Kristen, former, formerly named Shaper, uh, out of St. Louis. And uh, we started to date. And I ended up signing out of my junior year. And we uh, decided to jump into this thing together. And about two years later, we were married. And and about three months after we were married, we found out we were expecting our first. We didn't take long. But besides um, physical beauty, what is it that drew you over three years toward Kristen? Yeah, it was uh, it was really just uh, her humility. Uh, she had just an incredible presence, and um, you know, there's no doubt that uh, there's just different things about certain people that that uh, attract and. Uh, it was something that I did notice that first day I walked in the class, and, and we were friends, kept in touch, but uh, it, it was God's timing, thank goodness, that it lasted until my junior year that we didn't start because I don't think either of us were ready for that kind of commitment at the time. And um, got to know her family, a great group of people here in, in St. Louis, and so uh, we decided to make St. Louis home, and I could tell that she had a lot of the, the same things that I had in mind as far as what a, a future looked like. We, uh, we had some differences um, in faith, and it, it led to some interesting conversations with not just her, but also with her parents, uh, who did a great job raising her. But um, I, I was not uh, real good at, at explaining or uh, as an apologetic and in the faith. And uh, I'm certain that at times I was actually um, working against the cause of Christ by some of my self-righteousness, and, and things that I believe, to the point where, actually, I told Kristen, um, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we can be married unless, you know, you're on the exact same page with mm-hmm. me, which I, I believe is is 
theologically correct, but my delivery was really wrong. And um, so it didn't take long for her to say, you know, I'm kind of on that same page. Tell me what you need me to do, right. which she was basically appeasing me instead of following God's timing. But uh, it was a, a couple years into our marriage that uh, you could see that God was really working on her, and, and then her faith became her own. And uh, it was uh, just an incredible story of, of how God continues to just work on the hearts of people. He's not looking for some sort of ritual to follow. He's looking for the heart, and uh, he had hers. Uh, and, Mike, she had yours, God had yours, but, but also baseball had yours. I know you uh, were fascinated by the draw toward baseball your entire life. You eventually do sign that contract coming out of junior year, I think, out of Michigan. Where do you sign, and, and what, what does life look like for a 20-year-old kid uh, on buses between gigs? Yeah, um, yeah at that point, you know, I'd, I'd never had a job in my life. My parents, uh, as hardworking as they were, were extremely um, extremely gifting myself and my brothers uh, the fact that they didn't make us run out and, and go get jobs to help out the family, which they, they needed help. But they wanted us to be kids, and they knew if I was doing my work in the schoolroom and, and I was also continuing to, to, to work towards trying to make something out of an athletic career in, in whatever sport, um, then that was enough. And my dad always said, you know, there's plenty of time for you to work later. Right now, work at being a kid, and if you want to chase one of these sports, go after it as hard as you can. I thought that was incredible wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was chasing football and baseball kind of simultaneously, and, and it, it became very clear that baseball was going to be the better route. And went to the University of Michigan, signed uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers after my junior year. And at that point, as I said, I'd never had a job. So even the fact that I was making $800 a month before taxes, um, I thought it was it was it was a great reward, and uh, we're traveling. You know, sometimes we're traveling from Utah all the way up into uh, Medicine Hat, Canada. Sometimes a, over a twenty-hour bus ride. Right. But I was getting to play the game that I loved, and they were actually kind of paying me for it. And I was chasing the dream of someday being in the big leagues. What was the most frustrating part back then? You know, I, I think uh, being away from uh, my fiance at the time. Uh, there, there was just a lot of time that. Uh, we were stuck in different cities and not being able to really afford a, a plane ticket for her to come see us. Um, I think the, the frustration of also, like so many kids that come into to our organization now, I, I realize that there's a, there's a shock that happens the day that you walk into one of those professional clubhouses and you realize that, that every one of these kids was the biggest story from their hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody's used to, to, to having everything kind of revolve around them and everybody – being so in awe, but there's one of those stories in every single locker through that clubhouse. And um, to realize that it, it's a long haul and, and that you better take care of uh, what you need to take care of and not let anything really get in the way as far as your decisions go because uh, there's, so, there's such a little talent gap between player to player. What's going to allow me to, to progress and not the guy next to me um, once again drove me back to trying to make the right decisions. And just to stay with baseball for a moment longer, Mike, as you went through the various A's toward professional ball, did you see whether it's characteristics or just gifted with talent that you knew a player next to you was going to make the leap? And conversely, did you know that this player, for whatever reason, did not have what it took to to make it to the next step? Are, are there characteristics, uh, talents that you see um, when you look around you that allow someone to take it to the next level, whether that's in baseball or anything? Yeah, I, I think um, early on you could tell that there were certain guys with just a, a different skill set. 
and that they were probably primed uh, to, to make it. And, and you could also see that there were other guys. We, we had the advantage, too, of knowing how the organization viewed different players at that particular point. And, mm-hmm. But there were always the outliers on both sides. You, you would have guys that were non-drafted free agents that weren't supposed to amount to much, and next thing you know, they just kept producing and yeah. producing. Um, and, and then you'd have the guys on the other side that were the bonus babies, high-round drafts that were uh, can't miss that work themselves out of that position. And and to get to your question, there, there's absolutely, and I believe that's part of my job now as the manager of the Cardinals, is to help communicate to the kids in the minor league system what are some of those things. And it's kind of as part of my passion because I believe it, it really transcends baseball. I think it gets into the corporate world. I think it even comes into our personal life. Some of these things that I believe give us that edge to take it, things as far as they could possibly go. And I would I'd start with them, as I tell our young players every spring, there's a learning, a nonstop perpetual learning mentality that goes with the guys that make it to that highest level and break and beat all the odds. Mm-hmm. I think there's a level of discipline. I think there's just a level of toughness also that comes with that. I also think that, above all things, there's this idea of a selflessness that I can't even explain exactly how that works, but I watch it time and time again for the people that absolutely get the most out of what they have. It's not necessarily about them. They make other people better, and somehow it's brought back to them. And then I think along with that just comes this enthusiasm and energy for life uh, that becomes contagious to where people want to be around that. And you, you combine all that together, and I believe you maximize the things that you can control. Well, man, I love your answer, and I'm a little bit surprised in some regards by the the second tenant, which is the self selflessness. You know, uh, you may not know this, Mr. Mike Matheny, but some major league players in any sport get a bad rap or a deserved rap of being extraordinarily self focused. But you're suggesting that to be really successful, whether that's in baseball or anything, that you've got to have a heart that is is selfless and focused on what your success means for those around you. Tell tell me a little bit more about that. Well, that's um, kind of my, my sweet spot and the fact that um, I, I, I follow, if, and even while I was in the interview for the Cardinals job, I was asked, what, what's your leadership style? Unfortunately, I had a really good idea what it was. It, it is um, servant leadership, and you and I both know it's at least a couple thousand years old, and uh, we know that uh, the, the life of Christ was one led to serve others, not to be served, and, and, and I don't I know for a fact that that shouldn't be separated no matter what business you're in. But I don't think it's, it's, it's exactly accurate to, to just you know, point out the, the athletes. And I see why, John, because there's so much attention to the selfishness and, and the high salaries and all the nonsense that goes on out there. Uh, but I think it's just the world we live in. I mean, think about how many billions of dollars are spent every day in marketing and advertising that are tell, telling you the success looks like mm-hmm. get, all you can, get all you can while you can so you can go sit on your can. And, and that's the definition of success for the world, and uh, you give a bunch of young kids uh, more than more talent, more more dollars, more fame than most people can handle, um, and you expect them not to fall into that same trap. It's, it's it's almost an unfair expectation. But I think what we're trying to do, um, and, and when I get the opportunity, I try to live it out first because I truly believe that leadership is caught better than it's taught, hmm. and if people see a selflessness. Um, they're going to be drawn when it's for real, when the motive's right. And so keep challenging myself and our staff. Let's look, let's make it obvious that this is about them and, and, and let them know that if you want a winning culture, whether it's in your home or whether it's on, on the baseball field or anywhere in between, 
um, try and figure out a way to make people around you better. There's a incredibly weird phenomenon that happens because the things that, that you would like, they seem to come around anyhow. But in the meanwhile, you're making others around you better, which, which increase your ability for the collective goal, whatever that is. Uh, and individually, you'll see that you're making an impact in people's lives. Mike, is that a big enough deal that today in your current role that if you don't see a player that is truly selfless and striving to make people around them better, that you just don't have time for that and eventually they're going to find their way onto another club? No, not necessarily. I I just believe there's people that do it in a lot of different ways too. And uh, I believe we need all sorts of different people uh, around us. I know for us to be successful, we better have a core group um, that gets this. And I've been very fortunate, John, when I walked into this job, I walked in with some incredible pillars in place already, some some really good leaders inside our clubhouse that are players that that weren't just ultra-talented players. Mm -hmm. They were players that understood culture. They were players that understood, even though they might not throw servant leadership on it, they were were exhibiting it. And I saw it before I even got this job. As I was a part of the organization as a a roving catching instructor, I could see how these guys were investing into people. And and I could see how our very best players were going out of their way to, to make other people better, even players that may end up taking their job or players that may steal part of their playing time, which is essentially taking dollars out of their pocket, they understood that in order to, to succeed, to win, to be a championship-style player and team, they had to invest into others. And that was something that I inherited and uh, something that I, to this day, am still extremely grateful for and also challenged how do we uh, not lose it and how do we increase it. Mike, before you're the manager, you're a catcher. For those who know very little about baseball, what what what, what is the role of a catcher? <laughs> um, he has the uh, the privilege and honor of uh, putting on the tools of intelligence, uh, which is the equipment behind the plate, and uh, has the, the the also the pleasure of of being able to work uh, alongside a staff, uh, pitching staff specifically. But I also, it, it's interesting as you look at the number of head coaches in. Yeah. the game of baseball, how many were catchers. And I believe that's mainly due to the fact uh, that part of the job description is to have their eyes, not just on the, the little bit of space that they're standing on in, mm-hmm. in themselves, but they had to keep their eye on the rest of the field and have to constantly be figuring out how to help the pitching staff and make them better. There is an inherited, uh, an inherent selflessness that comes with the position. And uh, it, it is, uh, to me, one of the most exciting positions in all of sports because it, there's so many different roles, and most of them are behind the scene. It's almost like an interior lineman that uh, you shouldn't be really recognized unless the wheels really fall off. Um, and then you, you've got the privilege afterwards of, of really deflecting all the praise onto your pitching staff and your teammates. Mike, I, uh, I'm a St. Louis guy myself, grew up a Cardinal fan, still am, and uh, have many memories from Bush Stadium where the Cardinals play. But most of my memories revolve around sweating, uh, drinking as much liquid as I possibly could to stay cool, practically doing anything I could just to avoid dying in the stands watching the Cardinals hopefully win a game. That's me as I'm eating nachos, drinking Kool-Aid. I'm being serious here. How does a catcher bent down, glove on, mask on, gear on, looking up, the next player coming up, you're, you're, you're engrossed in the game. The sun is beating down on you. How do you keep your mind? How do you keep your physicality? How do you keep your focus on where it needs to be? Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a great question because uh, there are days now as I'm managing 
that it's hard to just stand there and watch the guys right. in the heat. And uh, but I, I think it's something you just become accustomed to. And uh, you know, you also you know we're wearing long pants and multiple layers underneath, and you're, you're just you're sweating. And you know, especially in the old stadium where there was turf, uh, that was that was really hot to the point where guys would come in and put their spikes in ice buckets just to get the metal to cool off uh, so it doesn't burn the bottom of their feet. Um, but once again, we all completely realize that there's some challenges, but it's, it's uh, there's there's a whole lot more challenging jobs out there. But we're fortunate enough to be able to play in front of forty some thousand every single night. Part of that uh, just helps you kind of distract from uh, from from some of the elements. But you know, our trainers do a great job because you know there were many games I didn't see half the game. So as soon as I would come off the field, mm-hmm. I knew I was always bordering on dehydration and so mm-hmm. they would take me down in the tunnel where it was about uh, 15 degrees cooler and uh, i couldn't see the game but they would soak me down with some ammonia towels and make sure i was hydrating non-stop because i was losing so many pounds of water weight each uh, each inning and uh, then they'd let me know when the final out was made or when it was my turn to hit then i'd go back out and finish the game mike how many years did you play professionally played professionally 17 years Give me the, the, the one highlight. If you could look back at your career and say, gosh, this was this was the climatic moment of it all. What, what's, what's the best moment from those 17 years? Well, I'd love to give you just one, but uh, I'll throw the obvious one in first as a second. But uh, the first was making it there. Hmm. And that, that first day, and you know, I just think about the millions of kids that are playing youth sports right now and all of them dreaming about their, their favorite team, whatever it is. And, and one day uh, being able to, to, to defy the odds, I had a gentleman when I was right at the cusp. I was getting into my early teens, and I was realizing I was a pretty good player. But uh, this gentleman came in and read off a bunch of statistics. To t- and basically, it, when he finished, told us uh, to change our dream because the odds of us reaching the big leagues are, are less than us being able to win the lottery. Mm. And I, I still see his face in the awful sweatsuit he was wearing that day. <laughs> and uh, he served as a, as, a, as a motivator for me and, and trying to figure out how Hey, somebody's got to make it, and, and why not me? That was uh, a big day when I first uh, stepped onto that big league field. I knew nobody could ever take that away from me, and I knew there were a lot of odds that I had to beat in order to get there. So, the Mike, second, before you shift into the second, my, my first speech, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate my career. Different than yours, but here we go. My first speech was 10 years ago. Uh, this was when I made it big. And my huge audience was three Girl Scouts in the fourth grade. I'd never been so doggone nervous of anything. And I'm being serious. Anything in my entire life. I got sick in the parking lot before walking in, reached for the handle of this door, almost let it go and walked back out to my car. Eventually made my way in, stood in front of those three little monsters, never said, never looked up at them. Uh, but it's an experience uh, I'll never, ever forget. What? what as a major league ball player, man, this kid from the Midwest, now you're making it big in Milwaukee. What's it like the first time you come through that tunnel, walk out, and you see 45,000? Yeah, it, it, it's humbling and it's exciting. You know, fortunately, my, my family was able to be there. Um, and I think it was, it was a collective victory for, and, and I was very in tune at the point of, uh, of really understanding of how much sacrifice had been made, not just by me. Because uh, I was playing a game most of the time, but the sacrifices that my family had to make in order for me to get there, and uh, my new wife, and, and kind of there was just a it was a, a, a huge mix of emotions, um, a lot of gratitude, and a lot of fear. I got to tell you, John, especially that first year, I I, I tell our young players this a lot. I, I I wasted a good portion of my first part 
uh, in the big league of fear of it ending. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I didn't allow myself to enjoy it. And so I always tell these guys, especially on their first day, I, sh- I share my story with them and I tell them, listen, um, make sure that you are grateful for the people that helped you get here, but don't deny yourself the pleasure of, of being here right now because this is, this is very special. And uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget that day. Um, but I also was uh, constantly kind of looking over my shoulder, wondering when this dream was going to end. <laughs> so the dream did not end for 17 years. You shared the, the highlight, one of them, stepping onto the field the first time. What's, what's the second great moment? Yeah, the second was uh, actually winning, um, and and I think that, that that's kind of the progression. Um, we've been fortunate here in St. Louis. We, we've had quite a bit of winning tradition, and we have some young players that come right into the league, and right off the bat they're on a, in a winning environment. Um, for me, it, it wasn't until I came to St. Louis. I, I was in Milwaukee's organization uh, for nine seasons, a um, few of those in the minor leagues, and, and then one in Toronto before I came over to St. Louis. In my first year in St. Louis, um, we won, and we were able to go into the postseason play. And I'll never forget is, is that team celebrating. And sometimes people will watch that, and it looks a little childish, um, maybe with a whole group of grown men in there spraying champagne and and uh, and embracing each other after you know been together every single day for almost uh, eight months. Mm-hmm. But but that is why it is because once again you start talking about the sacrifice of, of the things personally and, and for your family, um, and then a group of men collectively pushing in the same direction to try to achieve a goal. And when that's achieved, it's, it's just extremely special. So I'll never forget that first time I got to, to pop champagne with my teammates and my, my coaches and the staff and the front office people um, to see and to feel what winning at the highest level felt like. Mm. Baseball eventually uh, sunsets, Mike, for various reasons. And one of them is age, uh, body breaks down, but another is concussions. For those who, who don't really know your story, and maybe don't even know the, the challenges that we face as catchers and even as batters. Tell me and tell our friends listening how you uh, were concussed, how frequently it happened, and what, what some of the side effects might be. Yeah, I, I had uh, no idea. I mean, I think um, many of the listeners may have even played certain sports or even when something happens on the playground. And, and I think the easy, you know, they pull, put the finger in front of your face, go side to side and ask you a couple really simple questions and say, well, you probably just have a concussion and go back out and be careful. Um, at, at the catcher's position, one of our jobs is to, to protect home plate. And that's the way we were taught is to really lay down in front of the plate. You'll have somebody barreling in with at least a 90-foot head start. And uh, you try to hold on to the ball while they run you over. And uh, that was actually one of the highlights I thought of the position, being um, I love the contact of football, and you're able to kind of have a little bit of that in the game of baseball. Um, and so then I would get the normal response and I'd be told I had a concussion. Every once in a while they'd call me every few hours through the middle of the night while I was in the minor leagues. Um, but, you know, we, we they kept track of those, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, my My last, uh, season in the big leagues. I was in San Francisco and I just had a couple foul tips that hit my mask, which are typically that's the best place to get hit because it doesn't hurt. And I've never had any ill effects at all. And it's happened, I, I can't even tell you how many times. Uh, but for some reason, I had a couple consecutive uh, in a couple games, uh, a couple games where they, they had more than one foul ball. And I noticed that I was having trouble with my vision. And uh, I, I let the trainers know at one point and they started doing lots of research. Next day, I got another one, and uh, I began to realize that my mind wasn't working quite right, and it spooked me. Uh, so they 
finally talked me uh, off the field. Uh, little did I know that was going to be my last game, and they took me in and realized that uh, there had been some damage done uh, over the years. So the, they went back through my records and trying to just recollect how many times I'd been run over at the plate, which resulted in what they would call at that time a minor concussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were guessing it was, um, you know, close to 30, and uh, which wasn't, uh, you know, a far reach for people to play my, the position that I played for as long as I played. And um, at that point, they realized that uh, there's probably been some damage done in there that um, needs to be needs to be figured out, and, and it's subjective. Every person's brain handles a concussion, which the concussion is basically just is defined as a violent shaking of the brain. Right. And it can happen in a number of different ways. Uh, but they, at that point, uh, we tried to rehab. Uh, it took about a year before I could even pass the cognitive test that they wanted me to pass. Um, and it just became apparent that it would probably not be worth the risk of me continuing to play, uh, risk having another concussion that could go on with uh, long-term effects. Mike, was there ever a scary moment where you, uh, you re- not, not only the doctors and the leaders, the trainers talking to you about some of the concerns, but was there a moment where you had something happen and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is real. I got to really step away. Yeah, there were a few things. Uh, one of the main ones is that uh, I remember I, I drove off with the gas nozzle in my truck three different times in the same month. And um, the first one, I thought it was kind of funny. Right. Um, the second one is actually the same gas station, and the guy working the place didn't think it was funny at all. Um, the third time uh, really spooked me because I was being conscious not to do it. I, I couldn't multitask. And, you know, I, even a conversation like this, John, it was so hard, and I actually kind of went into um, a little bit of a recluse mode, the fact that I, I couldn't hold a good conversation because I knew the word that I wanted to say, mm-hmm. but, I could, but I couldn't get it. And uh, I started to realize it was impacting a, a lot of my life. And uh, my wife, the same way, I think she was a little humored at first uh, when I would leave the house and I'd go on an errand and I'd call back and ask her, you know, where am I going and right. why? And when it, when it happened a little more often, uh, I think she was spooked as well. So we realized that you know, this was uh, something that wasn't just keeping me from getting back on the field to be able to do my job. It was, it was actually affecting maybe my ability to, uh, to, to be able to, to communicate and to just live life uh, as, a, as a normal person would. Mm. Mike, you, you make a big shift away from baseball. You, you're right. You do a little bit of speaking. You do some coaching. You talked about traveling as a kind of a catcher trainer for the Cardinals and the minor league system. Uh, you also did some investing in, in real estate, I believe. T- tell, me, tell me about that. Yeah, probably um, – I could uh, not even probably without question um, the most monumental thing in my life was that that period of time when uh, it was great in the fact that I had time to spend around my kids uh, our kids all five of them were born within about seven years so they were all real close and had the opportunity to invest into them um, and then I was I was talented enough to still go out and, and do some things. And, and even while I was playing, I was doing quite a bit in real estate and having quite a bit of success. I'd say more because of the, the nature of, of the real estate market in mm-hmm. our country's history than anything else. Um, but one project really would start to, to boil into another one, and some of the assets could be moved into uh, a, another project. And uh, got uh, got to the point where there's some serious worth being put into these projects. With uh, without much risk, apparently, is what I was right. thought at the point. Um, 
And then uh, in August of 2008, while I was still rolling and uh, really um, putting together quite a, a real estate portfolio, our world changed when, when the market did what it did in, in 2008. Uh, I was exposed way more than I thought I was. I had two partners that ended up uh, having to file for bankruptcy, and it left a whole lot on my plate where I could could have covered my portion, um, but I couldn't carry everybody's. And uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, writing in the uh, legal letters uh, pointed towards that was something on my shoulders, and it put me in a tailspin. And so we spent a couple years. I spent a couple years trying to get things sorted out, and it just didn't look like it was going to. And I want to tell you, it got to the point where I realized that, that I had had actually invested into something that would put everything I ever made at jeopardy yeah. and uh, without even knowing it. And uh, it, they, they seemed to be good investments, um, but ended up uh, putting us in a really vulnerable spot. And the reason I say, John, that it was one of the most instrumental uh, times of my life uh, is, is this is one of those, um, I think it's just a God moment, and, and as I try to explain it, it's not going to make sense to folks, but I don't think that's what it was intended for. I, I think that was supposed to be intended for for, for me and my God, and and to know that, that, that He is good all the time. And as I started to see things fall apart, when I started to see banks trying to chase everything that we had, um, and, and we really hadn't done anything wrong, um, and to, to watch how my family uh, was watching me. And, mm-hmm. and I can't explain it, but I had a peace that passed all understanding. And uh, I, I just, not that I knew or thought it was all going to work out, um, but I knew in the end uh, for, for, for what God had in store for me that it was going to work out. And so kind of had to trudge through that. Uh, got right down to the point where I thought I was going to lose everything, and we were able to work some things out with the bank. Um, ended up, we did lose our house, but it was bought. Um, and we ended up even actually moving back in with my in-laws, which talk about humbling. Uh, but, but tell me this, John, how many people do you know, uh, can go from having just about, uh, everything lined up that you would want mm-hmm. and, and things go in your life exactly how you'd like for them to go. And without even knowing it, you, you almost turn into your own, uh, almost God, um, mm-hmm. if people around you get into a situation, you're able to get them out. Uh, if you get yourself into a situation, you've got the context or the resources to get yourself out. And I was at the point of being completely vulnerable. And, and, I, and, and I think of what a blessing that was. As, even as we're living with our in-laws at that point and five kids, I look around and my kids are enjoying that time as yeah. much as they were us living in a palace of a place before that and, and realizing that you know, there, there's more to this life than this stuff. And then um, able to jump back in and just start getting to work and figuring out, okay, what's next? And that's true. I, there, there was very, very, I can think of just one instance where I felt this overwhelming, like, what am I going to do? Right. Well, I was going to ask you that, about that, actually. Like, I was going to ask you how many days you spent at home, in bed, drapes drawn, just feeling sorry for yourself. I'd say uh, one morning. And, um, and I, I, I was fortunate, and I believe that's a gift. And, and uh Mike, I think it's important just to add context. I mean, we're talking about a Major League Baseball player's career earnings, millions and millions, completely turning into zero. And it's uh, when you lose everything and everything's not much, it's still painful. But when you lose a lot, it's very easy to have the pity party. And to hear that you had one morning where you had a little bit of pity on yourself, I I think uh, those of us listening right now are amazed by that. Well, and make sure this doesn't sound like a... um 
uh, pat myself on the back kind of thing. I, I believe, uh, I truly believe it was a God thing. And um, I, I just see it as one of the greatest gifts. And I'm and I, I, real cautious to say that because it was hard. It was hard on my wife. It was hard on our kids. You know, I, I didn't have much when we came up. Um, and I felt like uh, I was trying to be responsible for what I have. But, you know, if it, I guess you never know right. how you're going to handle everything being gone until it is. And and I went through the mental gymnastics, even though we didn't lose all of our stuff. Um, I went through the mental gymnastics of, okay, what if we do? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of going that direction. And to have peace with that, I think, might be one of the greatest gifts outside of the gift of salvation that you could be given. Well, Matheny, I met you when you were at the the bottom of the barrel in some regards, and you were beginning to imagine what a career could look like as a speaker, as a trainer, bringing a message into kids and coaching programs, uh, which I know you would have done successfully. And yet yet you had a call come in from the St. Louis Cardinals, this maybe least likely call. They ask you if you want to um, uh, interview for the role of the St. Louis Cardinals manager, which is one of the finest jobs you can have in all of baseball, and yet you're up against – uh, two big-name managerial candidates. And I think reality is you were the dark horse on the far outside of the track. Uh, t- tell me about the call from the Cardinals and and where your mindset was around the possibility of you ever even having a chance to become a manager. Yeah, I, I think um, like most people that heard that I was brought in for the interview, I, I, I think we all thought that there was zero chance, not even just a dark horse. This was just kind of a Maybe, uh, you know, someday be a good experience for him. I, I, I was working for the Cardinals, as you said, John. As I was putting things together, I was hopping. I had all kinds of different things going. I was kind of enjoying it, just kind of seeing where God was going to lead next. And little did I think that it would, it would be uh, as, a, as a, one of the 30 jobs as, as a manager in the, in the major leagues. Um, but I uh, walked into this with, uh, once again, I, I was just kind of smiling. It, it, to me, just that opportunity to have that interview was just another sign uh, of God saying, listen, um, this is all going to be okay, and, and there's, there's going to be some opportunities out there. This might not be the one, but there's going to be some opportunities. People mm-hmm. are paying attention to, to not just what you did as a player, but also how you're handling adversity. And I felt, I really felt like it was, it was a, a, you have nothing to lose, let's just go have some fun with this, but give it everything you got, because I'm not going to get in God's way where it's supposed to go. And uh, so I walked into that interview exactly like that. And mm-hmm. I, I felt like uh, there was, this was a divine appointment for me to be in that room, and it was something I should be extremely grateful for and not read any more into it than that and just kind of see where things went. How did you feel leaving the interview? You know, I, I, uh, um, I, I went out uh, skipping like one of those Girl Scouts you <laughs> spoke to the first time. Well, and, they were uh, so motivated after hearing me speak. I mean, do you blame them for skipping away <laughs> from that? nine-minute lay presentation? I don't, and uh, I, I, I understand exactly what that should feel like, and I left because uh, I, I left the way that I did, not thinking I was going to get this job, because it made no sense for me to get this job. Right. Um, but what I what I was very happy about is that I had invested, um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, I, I got the call, I was actually on ESPN doing uh, the gold glove ceremony, giving Yadier Molina, our catcher, uh, awarding him with the gold glove, and uh, when I got the text that came in, now you got to realize, John, as a baseball, as a baseball lifer, mm. um, I, I've never had a an interview in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did our interviews out in the dirt, right? And mm-hmm. so I had no idea how to go about an official interview process. So as soon as that text came in, while I was out in Connecticut, I instantly uh, texted my what I called my personal board of advisors, who I developed during 
all those times of going through some of those struggles. I put a group of guys together that just helped me wade through life, and forever they will be uh, at, at the top of my list of, of, of people. And just kind of asked them to help me wade through now this next opportunity, and they just hammered me. So I pulled a couple all-nighters of, of preparing for, a, for an interview, had them just pull out, as, as most of them were, were high-level uh, business people in St. Louis, uh, give me a high-level interview and, and, and put me through the paces. What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And right down to the color suit and what kind of tie I was going to wear. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in there, I think, with a lot of confidence, but also with a lot of peace, once again, with everything that had kind of transpired over the, the past couple of years up to that point. Um, I knew I was in good hands, and uh, I felt good about how, how I represented myself and um, how I prepared. This is a trite question, but here it comes. What color suit were you wearing? What color tie did you have on? Yeah, had a dark blue suit, a light blue shirt, and a uh, a tie with a little bit of red since that's kind of appropriate for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and, Mike, uh, before your interview, then shortly after, I remember sending you an email just saying, hey, man, delighted you got an opportunity and just wanted you to know you're in our thoughts and prayers. And I love you as a guy. I love your leadership ability. But like everyone else, probably including yourself, or maybe you're the only one that felt otherwise, it was a long shot. And yet you get this chance. Mike, when you got an opportunity to step onto the baseball field the first time as a kid, one of the things that held you back in some regards was a fear that it was eventually going to be taken away from you. That, that was something you shared earlier. I'm curious now, five years into managing, is something that holds you back in some regards a concern that, hey, this is sweet, I love it, but it may be taken away from me? Or did you learn the lessons as a, from, from childhood? <laughs> you know, I haven't really thought about it, put the parallel there, but um, no, I didn't learn well at all. Um, I walked in there realizing that uh, I was in a more volatile position than, than maybe ever before. Um, but also I, I was balancing this fact of this makes no sense there was nothing that I did that I can pound my chest and say I deserved this. And with that being said, um, I had this incredible, uh, once again, a piece. And you know, there's people that are listening right now that are probably just tired of me saying that. But I, I, it's just the truth. And, and I have no other way of explaining it because um, I was able to, to kind of hold this position, as I still try to do, hold it with a loose hand, realizing that if I'm supposed to be here, and this is where God wants me to be. But i, I got to take care of the things that I need to take care of. There's a lot of effort put in on my part. Um, but, but not to waste my time with the worry. And, and I tried to do that early on, um, but it was hard because I realized quickly how much I love what I do. And it, it almost to the point, and this is also going to sound strange to most people, almost more so than, than as a player. Mm. Um, so it was a, it was a, a great time of, of understanding uh, but there was also that that looming fear. I wanted to I wanted to reward uh, John Mozeliak and Bill DeWitt, um, my two bosses who who went out on a limb. They took a chance on me, uh, and they, it was a gutsy, bold move to put me in the position that they put me. I wanted I wanted them um, to be rewarded for for taking a chance on me. I wanted to do my job for my guys. I didn't. I was so focused on how can I make sure that that I'm not a distraction from from these guys achieving the things that they need to individually and collectively, and, and then making sure that all that's founded on how can I make sure that I continue to glorify God and thank Him um, for the opportunity that's put in front of me? Because once again, this isn't something I deserve, but I'm not, I'm not going to waste it. 
Well, Mike, you have not wasted. You've, uh, I think, four consecutive years of making it into the playoffs, five consecutive years of winning records. It's certainly uh, when they selected you as the manager, I think there were people who were maybe surprised. I don't think anybody's surprised anymore who knows anything about baseball. And yet uh, there are three million people, experts in St. Louis, who know everything about baseball. Just ask them. And they're the kind who comment on Twitter and under the post and uh, with signs in the stadium. And they have the right to do all of that. How much does the negativity about pitching changes or batting order and all the other stuff that people love to judge managers on? How does that? How much does that bother you? And how do you how do you begin to silence it? Yeah, I, I can't say that I'm impervious to it because it, it does. Uh, and you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice I got from Joe Torre was to make sure I never read anything. <laughs> and, um, and that's that's it's very wise. Because it's easy, especially after you know, like a very positive article might be written, and there's something every day that's going to be written that has your name in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you try to go and, and maybe pick up some of the uh, the positive pieces, and you're eventually going to be drawn to some of the negative. And and really, John, the, the way that, uh, that that I've gone about this is through a lot of help from people like Joe Torrey, people who've had success in this business on, on how to con- how to stay the course, and first of all, define what the course is, and. And if I stay true to the course of, uh, I want to make sure that my job description is, is that selfless, what we were talking about, that servant leadership of, of, of figuring out a way to make everybody in that environment, in that clubhouse, the coaches, the, the players, and the support staff, create an atmosphere for them. If I continue to stay the course with that, um, I can look myself in the mirror at night and realize that, that, that I'm doing my job. But there are things that I can control. And I, I got to do my best as far as trying to achieve those with the amount of work that we do in preparation, uh, being able to have the tough conversations, uh, being able to make those decisions on a whim and realizing that there are going to be a lot of people that aren't going to like. Mm-hmm. Almost every decision I make, there are literally millions of people that don't agree with it, whether mm-hmm. it works right or not. And, and part of that's the pleasure of being in, a, in a, an industry and being in a fan base that people are so in, engrossed and just they love this team and they love the players. And when you invest so much into this, um, it, it's impossible not to have your own original opinions and ideas mm-hmm. of how it should look. And so I, I get it. I, I get it. Um, it doesn't necessarily make it easy when you – you hear about the things that are being said, whether you're looking for them or not, they, mm-hmm. they come back to me. My family reads this stuff. My family sees the signs in the stadium or wherever they're going to be. Um, and, and I can't say that, that uh, they don't sting, but I real quick get redirected back to what's my job. And, and am I doing it the right way? Am I doing what I said I was going to do? And am I treating people the right way along, along that path? And if I can, if I can keep Keep going on uh, trying to make sure that I'm taking care of those, then I know I did it the right way. Mike, Mike we're moving toward uh, the conclusion together, but I will just add that, you know, in baseball, if you hit 300, you're rocking, which means 70% of the time you're failing. And as a manager of 25 men who are failing way more than they're succeeding, uh, and as, Mike, as you, you speak into an audience of moms and dads and sons and daughters and business owners and, and custodians and everybody in between, what, what advice would you maybe offer for those of us trying to better manage our business and better manage our lives? Um, yeah, that's a big, broad question. Um, you know, I, I can only take it from um, my own personal perspective. And, and as, I, as I look, and it's going to go back to some of the things we've already talked about. Um, I think if I can get outside of myself and figure out how, how to uh, make other people better um, and then 
you know, really what we're doing is we're making this place better. I, I, I've been so um, focused on um, you know, kind of the uh, the end game, and, and I think you kind of have to do that to some extent at some point in your life where you start thinking, what's all this for? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first place I'm going to go to is, is whenever anybody wants to, to get into a deep conversation, it's going, to, it's going to come to a faith conversation at some point, or else I'm not being real. I'm not being genuine because that's the foundation of everything that I do. And then once that's in place, I think then it comes down to, okay, how, how's this applied in, day, in day-to-day life, and, and, and how, how does it look? Um, to me, then it, it comes down to uh, leaving a legacy. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can look back and realize that we made an impact on people's lives, and we've, we, we've taken advantage of the opportunities that have been given, uh, we've taken advantage of, of some of the mistakes that have been made along the way. Uh, but in the end, we've been able to, one, stay consistent, to the most important things in our lives, uh, and, and then and then two, um, figured out a way to, to help people out around us. That's a pretty good legacy left behind. That's strong. All right, brother. Well, we have a, a set of seven questions we ask every guest who's ever sat on the Live Inspired Couch. So I'd like to to wrap up our time together by asking you seven questions, beginning with what's the best book, Mike Matheny, you've ever read? Um, you know, I. I I'm really bad about this because I always give you more, but but the Bible that we'll put that in, and that's just kind of uh, had answer. But after that, you know, the book that I really like is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm. Main takeaway from that, um, basically, that there any time that you settle for good, uh, you're cutting yourself short from what you could potentially be. Awesome, Mike. Tomorrow you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103 leaving you with millions, what would you do with that money? Oh, wow. Um, uh, <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> uh, I'd, uh, I'd take care of some, some family, and I'd, I'd love to think that I could give almost all of it away. Uh, I think I'm asking the right guy, so I appreciate the answer. Uh, Matheny, tomorrow you, you, you realize that your house is on fire and all living things and all living people. So your babies, your your spouse, your friends, everybody's out of the house. All the all the pets are out of the house. But you have an opportunity, Mike, to run back in and grab one thing that matters most to you. What would you grab? Yeah, it's a stack, and I, I've shared this with you before. It's a stack of uh, five Bibles that I uh, gave a year of my life for each of the kids to journal as I was reading. And um, to be able to give them what I was going through, different periods of life, uh, they'd end up, they're, they're supposed to be a one-year Bible. Most of them would take me about 18 months, but mm-hmm. I have one done for each of the kids, and I have those in a safe, and uh, it's amazing. Out of all the stuff, I've thought about this before, and mm-hmm. those are probably the most memorable. Have Do your kids know that they're going to receive these? You know, the oldest heard about it, and uh, I believe it was right when he got his wedding or maybe when he went to college. Uh, he asked for his. The others know that they're there but haven't asked for them yet. Um, I haven't really figured out when exactly I'm going to give them to them, probably on their wedding date. But the oldest does have his, and I know it's meant a lot to him. Uh, so, Mike, when you shared that with me five years ago, it rocked my world, and I started a journal for each kid. I'm not as faithful to it as you are, but each each child, when I pass, will know when Dad was on the road or when Dad was making pancakes, Dad was thinking about them and, and deeply in love with them. So I, I credit my journaling today to a conversation at a Starbucks with you half a decade ago. So... Moving on, man. If you could sit on a bench 
overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? Wow. Um, once again, I'm, I'm going to give a faith-based answer first. Um, anytime you have a chance to, to uh, spend with, uh, with, with Jesus Christ, that would be the easy answer. I, I would, would say after that, one of my greatest heroes is Mr. John Wooden, Coach John Wooden from UCLA. I think he has impacted me. He has served as a mentor to me, and we never had the pleasure of meeting. Um, but that is a man who I know um, made an impact through, through sports mm-hmm. to, uh, to change not sport but people. Amen. All right. What's the best advice that Wooden or anyone else that you looked up to ever provided you? So what's the best advice, Mike, you've ever received? Yeah, I would say uh, how you define success, and I'm going to steal that from Wooden, uh, and, it, and it's not uh, necessarily with trophies. It's, it's taking a, a good, honest look at yourself, the, uh, the talent that you have, uh, the effort level that you put in, and, and the pursuit of perfection while realizing that perfection is not attainable. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Stay away from real estate. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I would... Uh, you know what's wild, man? If, if you told yourself that, you and I aren't on this call, and uh, I have a feeling through, right. through intervention, you, you are exactly the real estate investor you should have been, and now the St. Louis Cardinals manager you are. I think you're right. I think you're right. But uh, I, I really believe uh, another... Another just truism is uh, to thine own self be true. And um, I, I think it's, it's finding out who you are, what you believe, and, and uh, don't let anybody talk you off that ledge. Mike, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Wow. Um, these are tough, you know, John. Um, yeah, I know. You thought the baseball season was a grind, man. You come on the Live Inspired podcast and you see what a real struggle looks like. I, uh, I, I read a book about Branch Rickey, and there's something mm-hmm. that uh, stuck out to me, and it was, in, it was a biography written about him, and underneath it said this caption, and I said, you know what, that is, that is uh, uh, something that I would love to have stated about me. And uh, it was, ferocious gentleman. And I, uh, I just believe that there's this uh, incredible balance. Uh, and, and I would hope that people would say about me that, first of all, there, there was, um, there, there, there was a, an appreciation um, for people wherever they are and whoever they are, but also didn't waver from his, uh, his faith, but um, wasn't afraid to fight for the things they needed to fight for. Well, Mike Matheny... Manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, husband, father, friend, uh, strong, devout, faith-filled Christian, and a ferocious gentleman. We are delighted that you spent a little bit of time with us at Live Inspired. You inspire me, John. So it was a, it was a pleasure, and uh, thank you for your listeners for bearing with it. <laughs> All right. My friends and listeners, for this time and until next time, this is Live Inspired with John O'Leary. That was Mike Matheny, and this is your day, Live Inspired. Well, thanks for joining me today on the Live Inspired podcast with our guest, Mike Matheny. I told you on the front side that this gentleman had an awesome heart. He's got a beautiful spirit. He's got a strong faith, and he's an incredible leader, not only of his family, of his the organizations that he's helped guide forward, of his teams, but now today of the St. Louis Cardinals. He's active in the community. And one of the quotables that I loved hearing from Mike was this. 
leadership is caught better better than it is taught. I'm going to say that again. I love it. Leadership is caught better than it is taught. It is modeled, my friends. It is what we do each day, not what we say, not what we write on Facebook or any other social arm you may want to use. It's how we stand up. It's how we get out of bed. It's how we go after it each day. It's how we lead our lives through the successes, but also through the failures, realizing ultimately that neither neither success nor failure is final. And What better example could there be than Mike Matheny and that incredible story, that incredible life, sharing that truth with each of us today? Now, my friends, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed bringing this one to you, please take a few moments, if you've not done it already, and rate and review this podcast. This is a quick and an easy way to help get the word out. Yes, already the word is out. We're touching tens of thousands of lives through the Live Inspired podcast. But what we know is we can impact even more. What we know is the community is in a place of fear. There's darkness, there's despair, there's struggle, there's adversity, and it's something each one of us faces. The beautiful thing about this show is it reminds people not to lose heart, not to lose faith, not to give up the fight, but to double down, to come back in, and to be reminded boldly that the best is yet to come. Yes, sometimes that means waking up from accidental living. Yes, sometimes it means making changes. Yes, sometimes it means doing things that are difficult that we've never done before, but the truth is and will remain that the best is yet to come. So help me, help us share this story. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell the folks you work with, the guys you play ball with about the Live Inspired podcast, about the Live Inspired movement, and they can learn more at johnolearyinspires.com. johnolearyinspires.com. So for this time, And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.